psychologist I remember being a little kid he was a professor sitting in the back of his classroom and just filling out this little questionnaire that had all sorts of true false things and it was so long and then I go to graduate school and I realized my dad was giving me the MMPI <laughs> to keep me occupied when I was like five in his classroom I'm like dad I don't think you're supposed to do Dude, that that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> 540 odd. That's so funny because so many people would think that was a trauma. Awesome. No. They'd be going like to some sort of therapy just for that. No. Yeah. He I was know. just trying to keep me occupied. I totally dig your dad. Is your dad still alive? <laughs> he is still alive. I really want I just to meet him. With, I just played with Legos. <laughs> Whoever <laughs> it is that that turned out Jenna Lejeune, I'm for. Uh, Yay for that. Welcome <laughs> back to Beyond Well, everybody. I'm Sheila Hamilton, along with our co-host, Dr. Jenna Lejeune, the person who took the MMPI. Is that what you called it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was The MMPI was my babysitter as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Brian Goff. Hello. Brian, are you still in a ton of boxes? No, I've been making uh, quite good progress on the boxes. Yeah. I, you know, staying up a little too late, getting up a little too early because the boxes are calling my name. Of but, course. But they're just about, they're, we're just about done. Yeah. Brian just recently moved and he has OCD, parenthesis. <laughs> <laughs> just, I like to think of it as screws just a little bit tight. <laughs> this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And every episode, we're attempting to build on that emotional toolbox. And I come to the show from the perspective that we're all on a spectrum of mental health, from days when we feel really outstanding to days when we really need some help. That's what we're here to do, is talk about how we get back to well-being as our default position. And I was so thrilled because it was Dr. Goff who took the lead on bringing you in, Robin Cruz. Thank you. And then I looked at your website and I thought, oh my God, I want to meet this woman. You're amazing. First of all, you're going around the country in a bus with two kids? Yes, yes. What? And one just turned a teenager. That is amazing. 13 last what? week. So, wow. holy crap. Yeah. Wow. Talk wow. about why you decided to do that and what the process was like bringing the kids and your husband on board for this project. Yeah, I mean, it started a while ago. I have a history of my my own mental health um uh, issues, anxiety, eating disorder that I've been in recovery from for many, many years. And um, as we know, uh, one of the elements of getting mental illness is via your family. Yeah. And my father, who um, incredible man, worked very hard. He came from an era where you never spoke about your problems, you never spoke about your mental health, and you certainly never asked for help. Um, I got a phone call that we had to go and put him into an assisted living. He had mm. struggled with substance use disorder for many years and had a stroke. And he was just unable to look after himself and we needed to support him. And, and that was, there's something profound when you see a family member um, have a life kind of taken into a direction that feels way too soon mm. and something that you know that that's not what they aspired to. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I went back, I remember having a moment of looking at him and thinking, my God, the only difference between you and me is that I have the resources mm. and I get to ask for help. And then 
when I came back, bear with me here, uh, when I came back, uh, just from the stress of overworking, because that tends to be my thing of what I put myself into if I'm struggling, if I'm kind of exhausted, if there's something I don't want to deal with. Um, I have a way of kind of accumulating stress in my body and then all of a sudden I'll hit this cycle where I'll go into anxiety and panics. And um, I remember hitting that wall and the first thoughts I had were I shouldn't feel this anymore Mm. I shouldn't have to go through this I should know better I'm a mental health advocate Mm. and then the next thought was my god Robin if you a mental health advocate feel that way imagine what Joe Bloggs feels like can you imagine he doesn't know or she doesn't know what you know Mm-hmm. And still you feel that. And then it just really had me reflecting upon my life and what I wanted to do. You know, I've hit 45 and um, I think there's been a lot of things, a lot of life choices that I've made from the viewpoint of um, protecting myself mm. um, and not really claiming it, that somehow having had a mental illness um, even as such as anxiety or an eating disorder has made me feel less than and put me in a small box. And I've done that. Um, and society has supported that viewpoint, of course. And I just, you know, I'm a kind of a, um, I don't like society telling me what to do or who I should be. And when I recognize that, I'm kind of, <laughs> let's go. And so this concept of, well, how do we go out and connect with society, connect with the people that are really struggling the most? My husband says, uh, I think it was a man called John Travis created this quote, uh, connection is the currency to wellness. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. And uh, we really believe in that. And so we thought, well, it's not enough to be behind a keyboard. It's not enough talking to professionals or small groups. How do we get out there and connect with the people that matter the most? Oh, and I love that. So that's kind of where it was at. And I still want to know how you convince the kids. Well, that's hard. That's yeah. hard because they're... Chloe is my youngest and she's a tween, so she's 11 and a half, and Lily is 13. Wow. And listen up. They, now, they are all for adventure, but, you know, I think this is probably true for all kids. The reality is very different from mm-hmm. what the perception is. Sure. And, uh, you know, there's a lot too being on a bus and oh, yeah. traveling and using it as a, a business opportunity as well. You know, when you're when you're doing 20 to 30 talks, there is a an agenda and you've got to stick to it, right? So how are the kids getting educated while you're doing this? So we tried out many things. Uh, we tried out um, online public school, which failed miserably. Um, oh. However, I will say that it was a public curriculum and it just tended to be eight hours of reading a day and it like literally sucked the life out of mm-hmm. wanting to be educated for my girls. Um, And now we've tried homeschooling where we have our own curriculum, uh, which has really been great. But now we're going back and we're going halfway and we're going to a private online school um, for the rest of the year. That's so wise. Mm. I honestly want to have a whole show about living arrangements because Jenna has given up her big home to live in a mini home. 
or, or a small, what do you call them? Tiny. Tiny, tiny home. home. Well, the bus is a tiny home, right? It's 250 it square feet. It, it totally, absolutely yeah. is. You also serve as uh, the director of advocacy consultant for Eating Recovery Center, and this is the only recovery center completely, solely dedicated to eating disorders. That seemed like, are you kidding? In the United States, is there truly only one place? I think that it depends on the levels of care that people have. So you will see that people have many. They treat um, eating disorders, but they can only take a certain BMI, uh, body mass index, um, and uh, they maybe deal, specialize with anorexia nervosa, but they don't specialize in ARFID or bulimia. Um, Eating Recovery Center uh, can... They, they treat the sickest of the sick. So meaning they can refeed people that um, are struggling for oh, life. So yeah. they can, mm-hmm. or they can treat the sickest of sick with uh, psychiatric comorbidities. And so it's really important oh. because the truth is about eating disorders is it's very, I don't think you get an eating disorder and that's it. You know, it's you have um, OCD, you have anxiety disorder, you can have borderline, bipolar, mm-hmm. you know, you can have, and there's a lot of medical complications that come across with, that come along with eating disorders. Well, I said once that I thought was fascinating, Jenna, was when you said if you have a body, you have a body image disorder if you're a woman. Yeah. Do I you really believe that? I Well, I mean, maybe that is not true. I would love to meet the person who isn't, but I have not met a woman in America who has a body who doesn't struggle with it in some way. It's just it's just part of having a body. And maybe it is also the case that every single man in America and every single non-binary, I'm certain that it is every single non-binary uh, individual who also struggles with it. Maybe it's the same for, for men. I just have those conversations mostly with women. Having a body is really hard because we live in a culture that is so unbelievably focused on how you look. Image, yeah. Yeah, yeah for especially, sure. especially for women. Yeah. But I think it's also very important to understand the difference between body image issues and that of an eating disorder. Absolutely. Talk about that disorder. if you would. Yeah. yeah, an eating disorder is a mental illness. And so it it is very different. So for example, somebody with a body image issue may not may be unhappy and want to kind of conform to what they think society's uh, body image is or be disgruntled with it or even diet, but that of a eating disorder will be dictated. Their everyday uh, thought process, their behavior is dictated by that mental illness and it's it kills, you know. So it's very different. It's a so it, is it is the difference um, the level of obsession with eating or not eating? Is that the difference? I think it's the level of obsession could be one classification. The willingness of in which they are willing to go um, in order to get that body is another. The uh, medical issues that occur when um, acting out in eating disorder behavior. Like we don't under we don't realize that, but the low potassium. Uh, the chronic purging, the starvation, that all greatly impacts our body um, on a medical, you know, uh, basis. And and your brain. I mean, that's one of the things that happens when people 
um, get to the place where they're they're starving themselves is you know y- your brain needs new Certain nutrition. Yeah, yeah. So you're you, starving your brain, not just yeah, your body. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So you can get to the place where you have individuals who are experiencing things like they literally look at themselves in a mirror and see a distortion. Now, yes. if that isn't in eating, it, that isn't in the context of eating disorders. We call that psychosis when you see something that isn't there, and oh, and that happens because you starve your brain yes Mm -hmm. and I also think that we have to remember too that when we're talking about eating disorder this is often co-occurring that we said before that is underlying that you know the behavior of an eating disorder can often be a medication that someone has self-prescribed to get that in to control I think that I think that bit um is part of the distinction between what we're talking about when we talk about body image Mm -hmm. and eating disorder because as, as you know, that the oftentimes the eating disorder behavior isn't really linked to how I look. Yeah, it's really kind of I think of it as almost uh, at least some of the behaviors are emotion emotion regulation behaviors yeah. gone bad. Mm. Yeah. Yes, like I oh, don't that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. I don't way like to the say way it. I feel. I'm going to do this. I feel less of the bad thing that I want to feel. Mm. I now can have sort of control over my emotional experience. But then the snowball starts rolling. And Mm. now it's got control of me. So, Brian, when we were talking earlier about my love of watching the Blazers, because I can be so like I can be so consumed by what's happening on the screen. You're Mm -hmm. describing the, the thought process behind an eating disorder of if I can think about what I do or don't eat, then it consumes a thought process that might otherwise have to bring in a lot of emotion I don't want to be thinking about. Is that a similar, is it like, is it a, is it a sign of numbing out? Is what I'm asking. It it may be the the trick here is right. Like that we're looking at the way the behavior shows up, the form of it. Mm -hmm. Right. And the question is really what's the function and the function can different can differ from person to person, even though the form looks the same. Yeah. So maybe it's numbing. Maybe it's my life is so out of control, but this I can control. Yeah. 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 I yeah. used to say that it was like putting on a super cape and hero panties and finding something that worked for me. Yeah. You know, it really made me my world slow down and feel a little bit more like I had control of it in a world where nothing felt mm-hmm. like it had control. So it really was never about the body, although it, although I built, I kind of bought into that. Right. Mm-hmm. It's easy to buy into what well, I have to look like that, but that was never enough. Yeah. It was always another thing. And it was really, when I think about it, it was the underlying of this chronic anxiety and uh, trauma, really, that I was trying to hide from. And it gave me salvation. How how um, serious did your eating disorder become? Were you hospitalized? Oh, that's a tricky question, isn't it? Because we assume that um, anorexia nervosa yeah. is, and, and, and I get it. I yeah. just want to clarify that we assume that the sickest of the sick is those with anorexia nervosa yeah. at a certain body weight, when actually people with bulimia nervosa can be often slightly higher than the recommended BMI and be struggling just as bad medically and physically and uh, definitely emotionally, um, mm-hmm. I would say that I became incredibly ill to the point that life felt um, like it wasn't uh, easy living anymore. Wow. And mm-hmm. I think that that's a typical thing for anybody struggling with um 
eating disorder and addiction. I think that that is a very common thing because we just don't seem to be able to, our behavior is not congruent with our highest values and uh, it it's becomes very difficult to live that way. Thank you for saying that because so often people will, uh, the support systems will overlook the struggle that the person's having because physically you don't look like you're sick enough yeah. mm -hmm. for it to be a real wow. problem. And then also internally it's like, well, everyone's saying this is really serious. Everyone's saying that I need help, but I'm not that sick. Yeah, I'm not that thin. I know a lot of people who are thinner than me, who are lighter than me. I'm fine. It hasn't gotten that bad. Yeah. And you know, what doesn't show up in a BMI is the emotional struggle, the hollowing out, um, and some medical things like damage mm -hmm. to your heart muscle. Absolutely. Yeah. I often say to, to say to my clients, I don't do um, much eating disorder, eating disorder work anymore, but I used to do quite a lot of it. And I would often say I feel more fearful when I'm working with somebody who's really struggling with binge purge behavior mm -hmm. than I am with some, somebody who's struggling with more of that anorexia restriction. Because at least with anorexia, I can sort of see some of the suffering in the body like mm -hmm. show up. But with, with bulimia, you know, the person with who struggles with bulimia, with binge purge behavior, they're on average 10 pounds, quote unquote, overweight. And so they're like walking around in the world and they look like, mm -hmm. you know, a quote, normal person but the suffering is still so there and absolutely you are right brian there are real medical concerns mm -hmm. that are going on you worry absolutely. about your esophagus you worry wow. about the heart yeah your uh, teeth your teeth absolutely. yeah your potassium. Wow. absolutely this is a good spot though to interject that we're for the sake of discussion mm -hmm. and i think shortcuts we're using these labels like mm -hmm. anorexia and bulimia to kind of be a shorthand version of what we're talking about. But for the listener, this isn't like we're going to draw blood and be like, yes, oh, you have the, you. You yeah. have the anorexia yeah, right. yeah. or you have the yeah. bulimia. Yeah. These are clusters of behaviors that hang together um, consistently enough that we can say, oh, just so that we move along in the conversation and don't have to describe everything functionally, let's call <laughs> this yeah. bulimia. But of mm -hmm. course, one person who technically meets quote unquote criteria for bulimia nervosa looks really, really different than someone else who also meets criteria. And then there's all these overlaps. There is many overlaps. Many, many overlaps. We don't want to forget, too, that just because we're saying that somebody has bulimia doesn't mean that they don't have restrictive tendencies oh, of that right. anorexia yeah. nervosa. Right, right, so right. it is a yeah. complicated thing, although in a way it's serving the same purpose. It absolutely, absolutely is. And then there's this whole kind of cluster of orthorexia, this yeah. being incredibly sort of over-controlled and obsessive about quote-unquote clean living or, or healthy eating, where again, some of the same functions are, are coming out, but you know, the, you know, Overeducated rich white guys that write the DSM didn't put that one into the book, so it's not a real <laughs> no. disorder. But I think the point, the the thing of let's let's keep an eye, love that, let's keep an eye on the function of these behaviors and the overlap, and that we're ultimately talking about like lots and lots of people who are all really different from each other, yes. um, as opposed to getting caught up in oh well I don't have that 
I have this other thing. Yeah. As though these things are codified yeah. and, and sort yeah. of quote unquote real. What mm-hmm. what worked for you? What was the breakthrough when you began to allow yourself to think or be differently around um, your eating disorder? What do you what do you like, mean? Was what? it was it a type of therapy? Was it oh, uh, for some, recovery? Yeah. Was it some like I want to start talking about the process to recovery because I've heard so many people say it actually wasn't being hospitalized. It was that I got a boyfriend Mm. and I felt loved. And then I got, I was having regular meals and I began to relax around food. Like their life circumstances changed more than the treatment changed. Yeah. I mean, I certainly think treatment is important. Um, And I think every year we see, especially in the eating disorder field and in the mental health field in general, we're seeing amazing new treatments that come into play. Um, Like I heard somebody talk the other day about a tapping treatment, EDM. Do you know it? Okay, I, I, I <laughs> sorry if if you had seen Brian and <laughs> Brian and I, we might have been wincing a little. <laughs> but but the point is, yeah. does it really matter what it is that begins to work for people if it begins to work and they can build on what's working? When a, when a bird and a book disagree, follow the bird. I Meaning, mean, if, it, if it works, yeah, then it works. Yeah, and to say like, well, that's not supposed to work, right? It still works. Mm-hmm. That yeah. being said, treatments are not equivalent. Exactly. So this is a really good topic in mental health in general, because, and especially when we look at, say, mental health disorders and substance use disorders, we have, we think that we have the monopoly on what recovery looks like. So, for mm. example, for many years, we thought that those who struggled struggled with substance use disorder, that 12-step was the monopoly right. for treatment, when actually, newsflash, 12 steps is actually not a treatment. Yeah. However... It has supported many, many people, and they are t- there are 25 million people currently in the United States walking around in long-term recovery, and only 5% of them went to 12 steps. Yeah, yes. and wow. so wow. Thank you. Absolutely. So let's put it in perspective. The problem that we have in regards to mental health in general is that we don't have enough education on the amount of treatments and variable pathways that they are to recovery. Mm. And it is not a one-size-freaking-fits-all people. It's just not. I feel I don't know if you know this, but I am very yes. passionate about this because I think that there are so many people dying mm. that do not know that there are resources out there that mental health is an issue for many people. One in five mm-hmm. people within the United States are currently undergoing mm-hmm. um, some form of mental illness and only 50 of them are trying to seek treatment yeah and there are a lot of treatment out there so we just have to be really mindful what worked for me may not work for other people you know what I mean oh I just so love that you said that Mm -hmm. and kind of building on that if you are in a in some form of Mm -hmm. a treatment and it's not working for you Mm. probably staying in it for another five years or doing it four times a week Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. is not going to make it 
work better for you. Exactly. Try something else. You know, and if you don't know what to try, then a great place to start is where the science says, hey, in general, this thing tends to work for folks. So start there. But if that doesn't work, you know, just really, really if something isn't working, there are mm-hmm. so many mm. other options yes. out there. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I think that we can feel like we fail if yes. we've tried that. And I see yeah. many people feeling like they have failed if they've tried a treatment and it doesn't yeah. work for them. And it just means that it's not the treatment for them. But it's there not is the treatment, treatment for them. Treatment, yeah. treatment is not a thing. Treatment is a whole bunch of things. Exactly. Yeah. It's and a I, combination. Yeah. And one yeah. of the things that I really love about what you're saying, Robin, it, I'm hearing two things that often don't go together. One is you are not your struggle. Mm-hmm. Right. This is the whole anti-stigma thing. You are not your struggle. You have a struggle. And actually better than that, you struggle because mm-hmm. struggle is a verb. Mm-hmm. Right. Not a noun. Right. And it's like, don't you're not defined by the thing that you struggle with. Mm. Yeah. I love and that. what you're struggling with is really serious. Yeah. And it's not the kind of thing where someone can just throw a self-help book at you and it mm-hmm. bounces mm-hmm. off your head and you're better. It's like the the. um I don't know the stat off the top of my head, but with some of the eating disorders, the number of treatments that people have to go through before mm-hmm. they finally get a hold on this. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a really, uh, I wouldn't say intractable, but it's a stubborn, stubborn set of behaviors and it's a yeah. stubborn set of thoughts that go with it. Yes. And it takes a lot of work. And full recovery from an eating disorder is possible. Yes. And just because you're in recovery from an eating disorder doesn't mean that you're unwell when anxiety or depression or all the underlying things come up that you have to face. It doesn't mean that you've gone backwards. Yes. It just means it's another process there you for go. you to get Preach through. Beautiful. Yes. I want to just read uh, from your blog. You say, our beautiful daughters who will look us dead in the face and ask mama, am I fat? Hating themselves beginning at a far too young age. Staring at her, your mouth agape, you can hardly mumble out an answer. Of course, you don't think her body is anything short of beautiful, no matter her size. It's perfect, even though you hate that P word, and encourage her to embrace her imperfections in your eyes. It will never be entirely about fat. Our beautiful daughters may want control. They may be striving for perfection. They may be targets of bullying and believe this is the answer to their problems. They may have anxiety, and this whole not eating thing is serving as a sedative. You must be completely conscious of the fact that eating disorders are starting to impact girls much younger and younger ages mm-hmm. because of access to, you know, the kind of Instagram accounts that, that we probably never got to see until right. we were, you know, 13 or 14 years old when we saw people on magazines who we wanted to try to become like. Now, girls that are six and seven are starting to try to shape their bodies in this. Yeah. How do you, you can't really speak to them. So how do you speak to their parents about watching out for this? Well, the first thing I would say is that eating disorders don't, it's not just an environmental issue. So we can, um, again, it's kind of like the body image thing opposed to the eating disorder. Environment's just one part of it. We have our family, we have our gene pools, and we also have the combination, the epigenetics. And so we have all this kind of, again, the combination lock that actually makes us susceptible to an eating disorder in the first place. I do feel that family have such an important role when it comes to modeling behavior for our children, whether they have um, an eating disorder in their 
their genes or mental health in their genes or not. My job as a parent is to honor and own my body. And I always say to my girls, and I always advise this to parents, I say this to my girls, listen, there's a whole world out there that is going to tell you how you should act, how you should look, what you should eat. You don't listen to any of it. You have that relationship with your body. Mm. You eat when you're hungry. You stop when you're full. And that's all you have to worry about because that is the most important thing that we have. And so as a parent, I honor that, right? I honor that. I don't touch my body and put it down. I don't, um, I, I don't, I talk to them about situations that are going on with them in their school, right? So when somebody says, your mom's stupid because she was being given a slice of chocolate cake in their lunchbox and her mum's a nutritionist and says that they're, you know, mm. that you're stupid because that will make you chubby when you're older. We get to have a great conversation about that wow. yeah, mm. and talk about how there's no good or bad food, mm-hmm. right? Except for fun food is for is non-nutritional, but that's okay to have. Yeah. And paying attention to your own experience, your own experience of things like, hunger and Mm -hmm. satiety and we especially again for women we teach young girls to not pay attention to their bodily experiences with food or sex right and especially now too when there's this whole kind of clean organic thing right you know which listen there is that debate food is in its place you know food is medicine and you know so that we have this whole debate and when we try to take whole food groups out of our diet for many of us that can lead to disordered eating and so we have this debate but i do believe that talking to our children and allowing them to have their um, relationship with their body is the best thing that we can do. And I see it work because I see, sadly, some people will come over, some children will come over, and if there's food that they consider junk food, Mm -hmm. they will be in our fridge and in our cabinets you know, eating that food because they can't get it at home, whereas my girls can go out and go to a party and and not eat cake if they don't feel like it. I'll never forget having a neighbor kid come over and finding her in our pantry shoveling scoops of sugar into her mouth because she wasn't allowed to have sugar in her home. Mm. Oh, my gosh. So there was, was like, to your point exactly, what was forbidden was all she was obsessing over, Yeah. you know? Is there a different message for boys in this? Because we're talking about girls and girls' body image, and I'm thinking, you know, with boys it may not be weight, although it might well, it's, be. Well, that's a really good point because what we know, studies have told us that although men will absolutely, can absolutely have the same impact on being worried about their weight, generally, generally it's more about a muscle mm-hmm. thing. So the behaviors are often slightly different, um, but... Uh, is there a better message than to listen to your body and to have a relationship with your body? Right. I don't think so. Wow. Yeah. Robin, I want to end on that just because that's like the, the, I think we just need to have that as our headline for this conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was so wonderful to speak with you. I hope anytime you're through on your bus, you stop by. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Robin. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about the ideas you heard today and find more resources, go to our website at beyondwellwithsheilahamilton.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please like us on iTunes or wherever it is you listen. Also Podbean. Podbean people, hello, we're here.